Hello again, and welcome to the Hashtag Pooligans podcast. My name is Daniel, and I am your eternally underproductive host. You can follow me on Twitter and on the Instagrams at D underscore twit, and you can follow this here podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Pod. First, my apologies. Today's podcast was recorded on the last Sunday of the last decade, so that feels like quite a while ago, and it makes us all sound really old, doesn't it? Man, where does time go? Far, far away, probably, really, because who could blame it? If you're really quiet, you can probably hear rhyme and reason screaming, Take us a long time, please, wherever you're going, we don't care, anywhere but here, because we no longer matter. (sighs) Poor rhyme and reason. They've really had a rough month. Just today, the President of the United States was acquitted without the Senate hearing any witnesses. Iowa is still maybe or maybe not figuring out its caucus results. Nevada has announced that it won't use the same voting app as Iowa, but it doesn't have a backup solution. And the latest iteration of the coronavirus is getting its party started in the United States. Oh, and, you know, the UK Brexited and Jared Kushner unveiled his Netanyahu fan magazine. He called him at least plan. And then there was the helicopter crash. Okay, let's not talk about that one because that one's too sad. So what do we have for you? Well... As per usual, we've got some counter-programming for you, a podcast with Jackson Sinberg, resident POTUS Presspool millennial and associate producer of Same Said Program. We had a great time talking about many, many things and virtually none of them politics. Instead, there's music, anime and some more music and then some insights into how the POTUS Presspool sausage is made. So without further ado, let's meet the enigmatic young man himself. No, wait, but before we meet him, please do check out the liner notes for this one. They are in the description of the podcast. You will find the names of the music and the movies that we discuss. I think you might get a kick out of it. Add it to your Netflix queue. Uh, maybe buy the vinyl or add it to your Spotify queue or your Apple Music queue, whatever it is that floats your boat. There are some really great recommendations there that I think you're going to love and hopefully take a listen to, you know, further those horizons just a little. Anyway, without any further ado now for real, here it goes. Hey, Daniel, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm well, thank you. I'll do my little intro, if you please. Okay. And then we'll get right to it. All right. Hello again. We are joined by a very special guest today who made some time for us mere days before the merciful end of 2019. Listeners of the POTUS Press Pool on Sirius XM Channel 124 will recognize him immediately as the associate producer of Same Said Show. He is the man, the air drumming legend, Jackson Sinberg. Jackson, welcome. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. I would have also gone with the bane of Julie Mason's existence. We will get to that, actually. We will, this will be, we will discuss that later on. <laughs> <laughs> but first, before we get there, let's talk a little bit about the formative years of said bane. Let us know a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? What is it that inspired you maybe to go into the field that you're currently in? So I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I went to a private all-boys school from kindergarten through 12th grade, which would explain a lot about me. I was about to say that really already explains a lot. I think we're done. (laughs) Yep. And you know, it's funny, I wasn't, my path has been pretty circuitous and getting here. I did not intend to really do politics or anything close to journalism formally, really. I, when I was 16, I thought all that I really wanted to do in life was write the cover stories for Rolling Stone and, you know, like hang out with celebrities and interview them. And I, there's still an appeal in doing that, just maybe not for Rolling Stone. When I was in college, I went to Georgetown because Georgetown's music program offered more of a focus on history and culture and journalism than Uh, a lot of other music programs which focus on like theory and composition and performance. So, uh, and also Georgetown's program offered the tantalizing tidbit that many of its graduates had interned with Rolling Stone. So I was like, sign me up for this, please. Uh, (laughs) But when I was at Georgetown, I kind of had this pivot where I went from thinking Rolling Stone was where I wanted to do music journalism and cover music to thinking, wait for it, NPR music was the place for me. So Uh, Uh, Yeah, we're going to have to. uh, No, 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 I'm sorry. We can't move on before we've explored the origins of how NPR suddenly won you over, over your previous obsession with Rolling Stone. I think so. uh, In my junior year, I took this really great history of rock class with this really subversive Mm. teacher who wasn't really about the kind of dominant popular narratives of like, it was this band and that band and that band and kind of that's the story. And so after taking that class, I kind of and then reading stuff like Rolling Stone afterwards, like, wow, Rolling Stone kind of seems like they're a bunch of boomers trying to keep up with 
the young kids. <laughs> you had your OK Boomers moment in college, yeah. way before it was cool. I think nice. it was enough times like reading middling three-star reviews of like Katy Perry albums were like, this is great. I'm like, no, it's not. It's bad. <laughs> and you don't have the courage to say it's bad because you want to play nice with the big pop star. Because you have to on the cover. Yeah. yeah. So I found NPR music was more refreshing, more diverse, like covered a lot of stuff. I was also, I had kind of burnt out after. So my music taste was really, really solidly like classic rock radio up till that point, And I kind of finally burnt out on that. So I was starting to really get into jazz and, you know, NPR music did a lot more jazz coverage. I ended up, I ended up, funnily enough, I end up work, I work with NPR's former jazz guy now at the nonprofit I work with here in DC, but I assume we'll get to that. Uh, but mm-hmm. yes, uh, so NPR music, you know, I thought they were honest. I thought they were uncompromising. I thought they did a really good job covering a bunch of stuff. My mentor at Georgetown, Anna Chalenza, who was the head of the music program then, she introduced me to Bob Boylan, uh, the host of All Songs Considered. When he came to campus, I kept in contact with Bob, and uh, a few months after I graduated, eventually landed uh, the internship with All Songs Considered and the Tiny Desk Concerts. So that was my foot in the door. But when I got to NPR, you know, they really encourage interns to... Yes, you have your work to do and, you know, they hired you to do a job, but they really want you to like really dig into just the NPR experience and explore the building. And I was really starting to get more into audio and radio production. I had also hosted a radio show at George on Georgetown's uh, university radio for four years. Well, hosted three shows over the course of four years. And when I got to NPR and started exploring the building, I started making an interns podcast that we made two episodes of that live on npr.org called Off Mic. There was a moment where we were with uh, one of the members of the investigations team who was describing how he made, you know, really made this like tape effect. He was doing this story about the abuse of undocumented migrants in U.S. custody. And this was like 10 years ago, not even now. And talked about how he made the sound of, how he kind of fabricated the sound of them being beaten for the tape because obviously he didn't have the tape of them being hit. So he talked about just like banging this metal desk in order to get that sound to get it for the story. And it just, that moment like lit up my imagination like nothing else has. Like Julie has her complaints about the NPR style, but I really, I really think that kind of immersive, like if you're, they're doing a story on nature, like the sound of like the reporter's, feet crunching on the gravel or, you know, the sound of water in the background. I think all of that really helps set the scene in order to really bring people in to the story, really kind of not only convey the information, but convey the kind of real human and experiential parts of what's important in that news story. So after that, I was just not necessarily like stopped covering music, but that kind of became the, the idea of producing news radio and kind of storytelling in an audio format like that kind of became the driving focus. So after I left NPR, I applied to a bunch of jobs and I, when I was doing my music path, I ended up interning for Smithsonian Folkways, which is the Smithsonian's record label. Uh, Folkways put out a bunch of the original Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and like lead belly stuff. Like mm-hmm. when on my last day of the, my internship, they took us all into the archive and showed us the original recording that houses Woody Guthrie's This Land is My Land. This Land is Your Land. Wow. Yeah. And my boss from there just started working at Sirius. So he put me in touch with Catherine. And uh, I was originally hired to be the associate producer and board op for Steel and Unger, but our executive producer had to leave. Uh, just a month or two into my hiring. And after that, we got an EP who was Vicky, actually Vicky, who is now the mm-hmm. EP of Cuomo. And she was based in New York. So they needed someone to kind of pick up work in DC. So I did that. And after Steel and Unger was canceled, I, you know, I had worked with the press pool here and there, guest producing when either Patrick or Shannon wasn't in. And then I you know the rest is history. 
<laughs> the rest is history. Let me go back for a second, if we can, to we will, I promise everybody, we will totally get to the press pool and the serious exam stuff. But let me go back for a second to something that you said about that that tape effect for for NPR that really yeah. sort of seemed to have set you off on a on a new on a new adventure. That particular technique is now used very, very prominently on some of the most successful podcasts out there that that do that kind of that kind of storytelling. NPR, of course course, being one of those podcast providers that does these now yeah. fairly, fairly regularly. In my past, I came from a filmmaking yeah. angle. So I, I also I had a really inspirational documentary teacher and he showed us a bunch of documentaries. And one of the questions that we were asked to answer is if you do a documentary, how much are you OK with manipulating the audience into feeling something that is there by ways of visual? On radio, obviously, you don't do it with a visual, you do it with sound. Do you feel that at NPR, doing something like banging a desk in, desk in order to get that sound of prisoners being beaten into a podcast for, or into a podcast, into a broadcast in order to, to illustrate or to tell a story, does that or does that not in some ways cross a, cross a boundary? Or does that serve the greater purpose of radio? I think it serves the greatest purpose of radio. I mean, yes, it's, I wouldn't call it manipulation. I would say you're trying to convey the seriousness mm -hmm. of the matter. I mean, you know, when I cut audio, a lot of what I did for Steel and Unger was cut audio and clips for their show every day. I remember that we were doing this segment uh, with Michael Steele about uh, another shooting of uh, an unarmed black man, this time in Sacramento, mm -hmm. and we cold opened the segment with the audio I cut from the police officer's body cam of them chasing down the guy and eventually shooting him. Like, the intent there was to, you could say it was manipulation. It was also to kind of wake up the audience and say, hey, pay attention. This is serious. I think, you know, manipulation is a word that can be used depending on one's perspective. But I think the point purpose here is to, yeah, we're in the news. Anyone who says we don't have a perspective, you know, POTUS is nonpartisan, yes, but everyone there has a perspective, whether it's Farley or Julie or Smirconish or Olivier. So, you know, we're always going to be looking for the audio that helps, you know, the, the bits of tape, the, the points of view, the reporters who in some ways help, you know, get across our perspective. Like, you know, Olivier has been talking to one of the reporters from Seven Days Vermont about how serious the opioid mm -hmm. crisis is in his home state. Like, is it manipulation? I mean, you could call it that, sure, but he is trying to convey the seriousness of the situation as he sees it. And I think that's what when producers or reporters do something like that, that is also what we're trying to do. We're trying to convey the seriousness of the situation as we see it. Can we go back to another thing that's that's close to my heart before we do serious XM? I'm just going to yeah, I'm yeah. going to torture everybody with delaying the serious XM segment on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, I found several entries. One of them immediately grabbed my attention, and that was your uh, foray into the formal world of scholarly essays. This one on one of my favorite people in the world, Miyazaki. Oh, yeah. I took a class, a couple classes with the same professor at Georgetown. He offered a science fiction and fantasy class, which was wildly popular and introduced me to a bunch of great authors like Philip K. Dick and Isaac Asimov, whose work mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. tangentially familiar with, but hadn't explored. And as part of the class, we also watched several films. And one of them was pretty sure, yeah, it was Spirited Away. So mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. wrote a paper on Spirited Away and the professor approached me afterwards and said that he thinks a lot of the writing was both strong and also thinks the themes I was exploring could be expanded into a formal academic article. For those of us who just sat here sort of dumbfounded by what these two are now talking about, uh, Miyazaki, of course, frequently called the Disney of Japan, even though I don't know that that actually does him a service, but that is sort of popularly in the West. That was sort of the title he was given. But he and Studio Ghibli responsible some of the most beautiful, heart-rending, inspirational anime films that you could ever hope to see. And if you're not familiar with the man's work, then you should be. I'm pretty sure Spirited Away won Academy Award for mm -hmm. Best Animated yep, Film. Yeah, won the Academy Award. And that is, as much as I love Princess Mononoke, and it's his, my favorite film of his, Spirited Away is still kind of his magnum opus in terms of the complete realization. I also, yeah, I agree with you that Disney of 
Japan is also misleading because Miyazaki has not not to badmouth Disney too much, but look, Disney is a mega corporation whose products do come down to kind of profit at some level, whereas Miyazaki mm-hmm. is an artist in the true sense of he's just out there making what is true to him. I mean, his, so his last film, The Wind Rises, came out in 2013 or 14 and was mm-hmm. a kind of not entirely fictitious, but a kind of poetically licensed retelling of Jiro Hortokoshi, who designed the Mitsubishi AM, which was the kind of ended up being the kind of kamikaze fighter plane in World War II. And, you know, he got a lot of flack for that, but he makes the point that, you know, an art, you know, creations of all kinds are used for propaganda or for war in ways that the artist does not intend them. That does not mean that what the artists make is not pure from their perspective. All of his films are incredibly gorgeous. You know, most of them to this day are still, uh, backgrounds are still hand-drawn and almost like this this vivid watercolor, just some of the most incredible visuals you'll find in animation. I'm a, I'm a huge Totoro fan, huge, huge Totoro fan. And I, uh, I'm also a huge Kiki's Delivery Service fan. That was my gateway. The, oh, I was going to ask you, what was your gateway? Was it Kiki's Delivery Service? Kiki's was the first film I saw. Our neighbors, our neighbors up the street led it to us. Are there any other anime, since we're still on the topic, that ever fascinated you the same way that Miyazaki's did? Or was that pretty much the high point? So from a visual perspective, not really. There was a film that came out in the late aughts called Steam Boy that was mm-hmm. also pretty visually compelling. But, you know, Miyazaki is kind of the pinnacle at what he does. I mean, I still watch anime, not as much as, and I was president of the anime club for a year at Georgetown, but, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, because I'm a nerd. I'm laughing with love. I want to point that yeah, out yeah, yeah. because I, I, it's not frequently that I get to talk to other grown-ups about anime uh, because I, yes. I was never the, the president of any club. I'm just freelancing with my uh, with my anime adoration. So I'm just I'm it's an elated laugh, if anything. I'm partial to an obscure show called Claymore, which I, I have, which I really, really enjoyed. I think I read because when I was in middle school and part of high school, I, I, I got Shonen Jump monthly. I recall reading part of it. I have not watched the only like Shonen series I have. OK, so I'm a huge Yu-Gi-Oh fan, but that's more for that's not for visual. That's just the junk food for me. I will say Naruto mm-hmm. was one another one where I like have watched every episode and read every chapter and like from Naruto all the wow. way through the end of Shippuden. That that's a lot of chapters for those of us now keeping up with Naruto lore. Yeah, but you know, I have not I used to watch One Piece when it was on Toonami, but you know, that's a, mm-hmm. that's an animal I dare not mount. So for those of you <laughs> listening at home, One Piece is the anime of One Piece is now over a thousand episodes long. Yep, and so shows absolutely no sign of slowing down either. That I mean, good for very, the very very good for the writer for not for continuing to have ideas, I guess. But like, buddy, land the ship has the airplane has to land eventually. Like, <laughs> no, that's not how gravy trains work, sir. Yeah, I know. It's like like I kind of have this disagreement with fans of the Grateful Dead because coming from a jazz background, I think improvisation has a beginning and middle and an end, not just like a kind of, oh, well, we're in this groove now that we're just kind of kind of noodle around with for like half an hour because we're mm-hmm. high and our fans are high and we're all like, yeah, man. This is cool. So how do you feel about people like Keith Jarrett, for instance? Oh my God. Keith Keith Jarrett is still one of the most vivid impressionistic musicians of the era, of the era. I mean, I love his, yes, his solo work, uh, the Cone concert, mm-hmm. sure, but his standards trio with uh, yeah. Gary Peacock and Jack Dejanet, like there is part of me, especially as a jazz critic, like listening to people do standards, especially if it's like a very straight ahead traditional style. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It'll always be like three stars, fine, good. You did your homework. But like, that's why I in some ways love listening to standards or different versions of standards just to hear how people imagine them like his version of somewhere over the rainbow is among the best for me i, I love a uh, donald bird and gg grice version is great for like a hard swinging like hard bop version but just the the kind of imagination and colors that Jarrett brings to everything he does when he touches a piano are pretty incredible yeah, we're going to have to do liner notes for this conversation for the people who have a hard time so, yes, so uh, keeping up here. Keith Jarrett is a uh, a pianist who 
emerged in the 1970s. Kind of avant-garde, kind of not though, but he's really known for being this, like maybe if you know classical music, something like a list or something like he's really impressionistic. It's all these like kind of vivid Monet colors. And what he's really famous for is just kind of sitting down at the piano and playing improvised music for, you know, hours, maybe not hours in terms of like two or three, but like, Mm. You know, whole concerts where it's just improvised pieces. I saw him in Los Angeles uh, a year and a half ago wow. at the, at the Disney Hall, and I was so glad that I, I mean I, I love his I love his standards, but I really I've been such a huge fan of the Cone concert, probably one of my favorite pieces of music that I've ever listened to and keep listening to. Also, his the the series that he did in Japan I thought was was the Nagano concerts were were beautiful and. I I was so excited to see him do that. And I I find something about that absolutely electrifying. Just somebody sitting down, one person at the piano, and then you watch creation happen. I I find that process truly electrifying. And it was really, really interesting to watch. I mean, those of us who enjoy improvised music, that's the joy of the thing is. That's the funny thing also is like, there is some jazz I will, like a lot of avant-garde jazz, I will... I cannot really listen to on recordings, but if I really enjoy it when I'm in the moment and like mm-hmm. experiencing it live, it's sometimes hard to sit down and listen to it for pleasure, but in the moment listening to it, it's always pretty invigorating. So maybe in, you know, in deference to, I'm really not a, a deadhead at all, but in deference to the Grateful Dead and their audience, maybe they felt the same way. I, don't I mean, know. yeah. I I get it. It's about just, the noodling. Yeah, it, it's just one of those. And it, honestly, it's a, an attitude I inherited inherited from one of my professors at Georgetown because he taught both rock history and jazz history. You know, there are some of us like my friend Felix Contreras who hosts Alt Latino on NPR music. He's mm-hmm. he is both a huge jazz fan and a huge Deadhead. So there's a lot of crossover <laughs> there for them. It's just like. As someone who doesn't do drugs, maybe I'm not getting all of that appeal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I also think back, I interviewed John Kedlasek, who was a member of Dark Star Orchestra, who, which is the kind of preeminent Grateful Dead tribute band. And he played in a band called Further with members of the Grateful Dead, like Phil Lesh and Bob Weir. He, when I interviewed him, he talked about the fact that within that community, there is this kind of overwhelming hero worship of people who like him who do this improvised thing. And he's like, it's not like that uncommon. Mm-hmm. So he, do, you know, he doesn't see the kind of connection between the kind of people that, that kind of intense hero worship, because he's probably very aware of kind of improvised music and in other formats. Since we're still on music, for those of us who have a harder time with, with jazz, if you had to recommend gateway drugs to jazz. I would point to, uh, yes, because I think about this, a lot. I mean, I my friend Nate Chinen, who's uh, who used to work for the New York Times, now runs WBGO, which is the the kind of jazz public radio station. His advice is always kind of just explore what's around you. Like, go to your local bar or club if they're offering jazz and mm-hmm. try it out. I would say that's good, but to kind of get an appreciation for the culture and the tradition, and because jazz is such a self-referential and tradition and almost ancestral focused genre where the history matters a lot. Getting into some of those historical recordings is always great. I'd say Bill Evans, the complete Village Vanguard recordings is just, it is still pretty much just any time of day you can distill that into a liquid and shoot that into my veins and I will enjoy it immensely. Uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers Ugetsu concert has some of their best writing, best playing, like really, that's a really solid introduction to like the classic. I, it's a sextet there, but the kind of small combo trade-off and improvisation and the kind of classic head melody, solo, 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 and return to head melody, end of song format. Mm-hmm. If you want to start kind of veering into territories more avant-garde, yes, A Love Supreme by John Coltrane is kind of always mm-hmm. a good a good centerpiece for between the highly traditional and the departures into more avant-garde territory. In terms of modern stuff, I really like this album by Ben Wendell, who's a saxophonist out of New York called The Seasons. Uh, It was based off this project he did three years ago where he wrote uh, duets for every month of the year and then invited musician friends to play on them. It was an incredible cycle that he then made into whole band arrangements. 
Keith Jarrett, uh, live in Tokyo with the Standards Trio is another good, mm-hmm. very good, like just introductory record on that count too. My gateway in a lot of ways was the Smithsonian Jazz Anthology, which they had just reissued, and that's like a it's like a six disc set that covers the history from Scott Joplin to you know Anthony Braxton and Weather Report, and not you know the most cutting edge modern stuff, but modern ish stuff of you know the last twenty years. So that is a and has the liner notes and background and everything so that is a a good way to approach that i actually backed they were doing a similar project for hip-hop that i kickstart helped kickstart several years ago that i paid my hundred dollars up front so i could yeah because i know very little about hip-hop historically so i think that would help just put everything into one place for me and contextualize it and give me the kind of necessary background to understand it. I might have to also put down my $100 if the Kickstarter. Was that a literal Kickstarter? Yeah, yeah, it was a Kickstarter. Is the that Kickstarter gone? closed, yeah, but, and they should have issued it maybe a year or two ago, so I don't know what's holding it up, but it'll be out eventually, so you'll be able to put down your $100 and order it. Looking forward to that. Now that we have, and I promise to everybody who's listening, I know we usually don't do extensive extensive podcast notes where we mention everything that was talked about, but I'll really try and and put this together in the podcast notes so you guys don't have to scribble things down and or tune out while people are being talked about that you may or may not have heard of because all of these people are important to listen to. And if you don't listen to Keith Jarrett's uh, Cone concert, I will personally come after you. And if that if that particular piece of music doesn't move you, then I really don't know uh, how to help you any further. Now, Back to why everybody probably came here, Sirius XM, the lore and the stories. Could you describe for us what does your day at Sirius XM as the associate producer, how, how do we imagine said day going? What do you do? For the press pool, you know, when I, I will get to work between two and three and check in with PF to see if, you know, we need to put anything on de- what we want to put on demand or on publish, which is the the link, you know, the links to the interviews that are outside the Sirius XM paywall that we'll put up, mm-hmm. you know, check in on who who's in studio. I will, I will pre-tag the show, start writing some of the tweets. A lot of my work during the show is either tweeting or, you know, pulling the live reads or pulling segments or pulling clips that we hear. And as well as usually recently, I've, it's been uh, helping roll in the clips from Westwood One, which is the kind of wire-ish news service we use and they cut a lot of their own audio clips and you know some of the stuff we have also cut some of the stuff we do not cut so it's always helpful to have all of that in the background uh you know i will Mm -hmm. help fetch guests and bring them into the studio you know set them up with their refreshments and their headphones antagonize julie every once in a while through the talk back (laughs) mic uh Agree with her. Or through air drumming. Yeah, well, I've been better about that recently. Although PF although PF does it too, he just gets away with it. Well, Patrick gets away with anything because he's Patrick. As he should. Yes. Uh, the air instrumenting was a bad habit. I started in high school when I started learning guitar. If I was bored in class, I'd just like start, you know, because <laughs> if I was, if I was, you know, learning. You, a started, piece of, you started fingering. Yeah. I would start you know, doing that just in the air to like, just practice the kind of hand positions on the neck. And then it just developed into, you know, me doing it for a lot of stuff. Uh, I will occasionally air trumpet or air saxophone or air piano. Uh, if I'm listening <laughs> to jazz, I will definitely air guitar when I'm listening to some, to like the gaslight anthem, I will air guitar hard <laughs> I will air drum, you know, and air drumming too was part of that. So it's just, yeah, it, it is It is a habit I started that I sometimes almost unconsciously slip into. It's not, you know, I not, there are times, yes, I do air drum specifically because I know it will bother Julie some, but most of the time it is just me going like, oh, this is awesome and start doing the awesome drum part in the air and then, oh, right, she hates it. How many of the relevant instruments have you actually physically played? Uh, one of them, guitar. So when you're doing your air drumming, are you mostly hitting the snare or are you also doing the cymbals? I'd say I'm trying to do it all. Like, especially because oh, wow. I think okay. I, because when I think about the parts I especially air drum to, it's usually like some kind of like 
big drum roll where they're like going over the tom and the snare and the bass and the the cymbals. Okay, so you you're doing like the whole the whole set really. Yeah, doing it all, cowbells and all. Good. Oh yeah, got to got to have more cowbell. Okay. <laughs> what about what about air? I will air bass very occasionally. It it just uh, you knew where I was going. I'm glad. Yes. Like uh, especially, I occasionally try to like air upright bass because jazz has a lot of that and you know a lot of cool parts. It, that is just hard to do without. Like if you air guitar, people kind of know what you're doing. If you're doing like air upright bass, that's like that just looks weird. That that does that does look kind of strange. I would not I would probably not do that. Julie would say that about a lot of what I do with my life. That is that is true and I think also a point that we will address shortly. Uh, but <laughs> do you you know you you know that we have a um, we have several bass players in the in the Pooligans League. I did not. And yes, yeah, Bubbles, Bubbles is a bass player. I'm a bass player, and uh, we have we yeah no we have a we have a whole lot of bass players, and we particularly care about uh, how do you feel about Rush because I'm noticing Rush is one of the greatest bands of all time. I will accept no slander about Rush. Wow, you have just endeared yourself to Bubbles in ways you cannot even possibly begin to imagine. I'm still so. There are bigger Rush fans than I, like uh, one of my friends, Keith, who I went to Georgetown with. Like, So when I think about Rush, yes, all of their work is great. I think their best work is the 70s stuff where they're, where Neil Peart's really in the like fantasy sci-fi like mm -hmm. wing of just like epic storytelling. So like 2112 or uh, Hemispheres, that kind of epic multi-form suites is just always, to me, what Rush is is like those bold ideas, those big arrangements, those long form songs. But my friend Keith will be like, no, there is no one greatest part of Rush's catalog. It is all great. Mm -hmm. But that, that, uh, I, I think them, that would be Bubbles' dance too. Yes, yep. I saw them once live on the Clockwork Angels tour. I tried to see them on the R40 tour. I did not get a chance to, and it makes me sad. But uh, yeah, it's. I feel like Rush is one of those bands where if you play like hard rock or metal music much like iron maiden hello be thy name probably one of my favorite songs of all time ever anywhere the first time i saw iron maiden they did not play that because they were in a dispute about copyrights really you know some band was claiming steve harris based based it off their song which eh, it's it's not an unfair claim but uh i saw them over the summer and they finally played it in the in the encore, I was like, yes, this is, it's a shame that they didn't end the set with that because that's just, I, I, I've talked with friends about this. They're uh, musician friends I have who think that, you know, ending on a, like ending on like a hallowed be thy name or like a kind of not like kind of upbeat song is kind of apropos. And I'm like, no, that I, I like that kind of like almost the apocalyptic darkness of stuff like that. Just like, this is the end. Rah. Exactly. It's either that or Rhyme of an Ancient Mariner, but one of the two. And the Rhyme of an Ancient Mariner, they never play live, but still. Yeah, I am I am sad. One of my friends who I who I usually see Maiden with, he saw them on the Somewhere Back in Time tour, in part because Dream mm -hmm. Theater, Dream Theater, his favorite band, was opening really? for them. Yeah. That kind of progressive metal was never my thing. But anyway, yes, Dream Theater. So yeah, he... So he probably saw them do Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Ah, uh, intense jealousy. So it's funny that Julie and I have talked about our kind of taste in newsmaking and mm -hmm. philosophy of newsmaking in terms of music. She, you know, she's a huge fan of like Black Flag and punk and post-punk and all that. Yep. So she's very much, I want, she's has said she wants the news very much to be like, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, da, 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 da. Like just no mm -hmm. bullshit, just cutting right to it. Whereas... You know, my favorite albums are like Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, which would explain a lot about my taste in audio production. I Ooh, yes. And also a major point of contention with uh, with Julie, that one. Not a Pink Floyd fan. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense knowing what her favorite bands are. That was in some ways the point of mm. the punk revolution mm -hmm. was saying that Pink Floyd and Yes and all of that was, you know, uh, bloated and saccharine mm -hmm. and not worthy of being listened to but you know i would say you know in terms of you know we've talked about my imagination before with miyazaki and with tape like listening to dark side of the moon for the first time was one of those like not like was one of those few moments in my life i can say definitively something blew my mind 
Like I like it was the, mm-hmm. the first time listening to Kind of Blue by Miles Davis where I wasn't quite the same afterwards. And that is really what those experiences are about. That that's if if entertainment can do anything, art. Let's say art. W- right when entertainment crosses over into art, which is always arbitrary and subjective, but whatever it is that that does that for you, those are formative experiences for those of us who who really thrive on those experiences. Oh yeah, I can, I can so I can I can definitely see that. So so you're. You, idea of news then how would you do news in the style of pink floyd i mean that's why i work want you know that's why i like npr because i feel like it is that style i mean i i specifically cite something like dark side of the moon because like other of my favorite albums like to pimp a butterfly it's considering the audio medium in more of its fullest sense you know not just there is an intimacy that comes with audio the audio medium especially today because we listen not primarily through speaker systems but through our headphones which you know chris richards who i am friends with independent of our relationship on the press pool you know that's one of the things he talks about with billy eilish is that she is so popular because she represents this kind of intimacy and this quiet singing that is just so relatable in a very intimate way and that part of that is because the nature of how we listen to music has changed from being a social thing to being a personal Mm -hmm. thing i mean yes people go to concerts and whatnot but in terms of listening to recorded music, it's gone from, you know, a hundred years ago, like the Victrola sitting next to my desk, you know, that being the thing the family gathered around or the radio to, you know, headphones. But when I think of albums like To Pimp a Butterfly or Dark Side of the Moon, and when I think about news, I think about how it's really using the full spectrum of the audio format. You know, it's not just people talking or making music, but really bringing in just sound and tape and all these little different things that make the listening experience more complete. So it's not just about the music or just about the news. It's about this whole bringing the listener into the whole experience using these bits of you know tape that aren't usually you know, associated. Like there's this song "You" on "To Pump a Butterfly" where Kendrick is angrily, conf- drunkenly confronting himself in the mirror uh, about not visiting one of his friends when they uh, died, and there's this little moment where you just hear him, you know, he's crying and he lifts the bottle up to his mouth and you hear the tinkle of the glass against like his rings or something as he takes a swig. And it's just one of those moments that conveys the desperation and hurt and depression and frustration and all the immense emotions that he's feeling in that scenario that he necessarily wouldn't be able to convey in just words alone. It makes sense. I guess I can see the I, I can definitely see the value of both. I know that a lot of listeners of the of the press pool listen to the press pool specifically because it is more like Black Flag on the one hand, because it is Julie is incredible. And the more I've listened to her, the more I've noticed she's incredibly good at asking the shortest, most concise possible question to get to her guest to talk about what they really want to talk about. Yeah. And it, it it's a real skill. I, I clearly don't have it. My questions are frequently too long and, and too prosaic and, and aren't going anywhere. She's extremely good at asking a short, concise, and frequently brings some brings a little bit of levity to it or some humor to it as well um, in very few words and then prompting her guests to talk about what it is that they are here to talk about that they actually really know about because they don't, they're not there to pontificate. They're there to actually talk about their work. They're there to, in some ways, report the news. Not in some ways, but yep. yeah, they're there to report the news to us, to the listeners. So yes, that is... One can't just say, well, tell us what your piece is about, because that's way too open-ended. So yes, that is. <laughs> yep. No, she's 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 read them. She's no she knows what she's asking. And and it's I think a lot of listeners really enjoy that conversation. I'm now actually trying to imagine what a um what a to pimp a butterfly type of Julie Mason would sound like. And I literally cannot. Yeah, I can't. I think it's. I, I can't. I can't picture it. It's not. A, it's 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 just probably not a thing. And that's something that also strikes me listening to like, like the only NPR show I listen to almost religiously is Weekend Edition Saturday because I, you know, Scott Simon, the host of that show is just been the voice of my Saturday mornings for most of my life. And also I consider him now that we follow each other on Twitter and he gives me advice. I consider him something of a mentor. And that's so that's something that strike, strikes me about his question, because if the first question is, you know, tell us why you did this thing, or 
why did you do this thing? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just really short, you know, again, kind of black flag question that really lets the guests talk about both what not necessarily, well, what they want to talk about to a degree, but more what, you know, they're there to talk about. I've frequently struggled with this in the podcast, not being a professional at all. It's a, it's, it's a struggle to figure out how to make these conversations flow in a sensible way. And then you have to keep editing in mind, obviously. And sometimes in the intros, I try with music or with, with you know, something a little bit more fun. But it's, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty enamored, yeah. extremely enamored with the way that the POTUS press pool works. Otherwise, I wouldn't have started a podcast about it. But it, it um, I aspire to that sort of, to that sort of brevity and clarity in question posing. I was going to say, but they're also, to a degree, different animals entirely. I mean, aspirationally, yes, you want, you can want it to sound like that, but you know, oh, no. there is also a yeah. kind of practical nature yeah. in the fact that an NPR segment or a press pool segment is maybe 15 minutes at most, but usually mm-hmm. like a, a Julie interview is like somewhere around seven to 10 minutes. So, you know, you need to ask the short questions because you're eating and you'd be eating into your guest time one, two, because mm-hmm. you want to kind of milk as much information from them as possible. Whereas both the good and bad of, you can say both the blessing and the curse of the podcast form is because it is so long form, it can be these more winding questions and long conversations. Like think of a, not that I listen to him too much, but think of a Joe Rogan where he's just kind of asking those kind of, some of them can be short, some of them can be longish rambling questions. And, you know, his mm-hmm. show goes for two or three hours. And I've, I've tried those. I've done those. I've, I've done three hour shows and it's, I guess it would be easier if I didn't have to edit it, but I I know that I don't enjoy listening to three hours of Joe Rogan, and he is the still the most successful podcast out there. So who am I to make three hour shows? But occasionally we do it. We we do it anyway, even though, like you're saying, a th- three hour commitment to a podcast is uh, is a serious undertaking. I feel like it also, to a degree, depends on who the person speaking is, and you know, Rogan also has a kind of certain audience shall we say yeah a, a, a huge one yep well a huge one yes and it's you know pulls in a lot of people but there is also a kind of idea of a kind of joe rogan fan and you know they might also be as stoned as he is while he's doing the show so <laughs> not to say that you have to be stoned to enjoy the show but i'm saying maybe that helps is conducive to a listening to a two to three hour show but yeah i've i'm trying to think hmm. there are Actually, I think the only episodes I've listened to in full of, like in full cover to cover have been when he's interviewed Henry Rollins, just because I will listen, mm-hmm. can listen to Henry Rollins talk for hours because he's such a fascinating guy. Yeah. Also one of Julie's favorite guests. Oh, yeah. Famously. Uh, and who I've helped the last, I think the last couple of times he's been on, it's because I've mentioned to PF, like he has a project he's working on that we should have him on to talk about. Yeah. He's, he's always a huge pleasure. I've unofficially dubbed myself the press pool's chief Henry Rollins correspondent. <laughs> Is Julie aware of this? <laughs> I think I, I think I've mentioned it to her in passing, but again, it's like a, me jokingly saying it because I you know follow him on on the social medias and mm-hmm. I'm out there making sure that if he has a thing that comes out, you know, because hell, I like having Henry Rollins on the press pool. I think it's fantastic whenever we have like when we had John Doe or when we have Henry, like these punk rock musicians just kind of interrupt the regular flow of the press pool. I, that's actually one thing, one one last thing I was really going to say. I, I don't want to fanboy out too much, but uh, the, the, the difference to me between listening to three hours of Julie Mason and three hours of Joe Rogan is is vast and significant. And I, I can I can listen to, to Julie for three hours daily and I can not make it through one Joe Rogan episode. But that's because Julia is also doing so much. You know, she's trying to offer, she has her view of what the most important stories are of the day and what is engaging to her audience and what is engaging mm-hmm. overall. And she and PF try to, to design a show that allows her to get that across. And of course it is going to be varied, even if, you know, half of it is about what the 2020 candidates, individual 2020 candidates are up to. It's still mm-hmm. meant to be of that great variety and not just a kind of, monotone one note i absolutely agree 
And uh, do you feel that since you are in charge of a lot of the, the social media, since we haven't really tackled social media yet, do you feel that the particular mission of, of the POTUS press pool being neither red nor blue, but red, white and blue, as they say so memorably, do you feel when you tweet out guests, when you tweet out comments on the on the official account, is that something that that always needs to be taken into account as far as tone goes? I'd say it's in some ways it's not difficult. I am aware of what our audience is and what our brand is. So of course I'm not going to, you know, tweet like an MSNBC host. You know, I kind of try to take cues from other reporters, especially like Olivier, and kind of mm-hmm. gently suggest the direction. If I retweet stuff from reporters or like tweet out like a fact check kind of thing, it's more kind of on that line where I'm just like restating a factual statement. There are often times, for example, where people tag, tweet at us, tagging us as POTUS press pool, thinking that we are like the press pool, like the official Twitter account for the <laughs> presidential press pool. And I have to gently write back, thank you for tagging us. We are not the Twitter account of like the, the press White pool. House press pool. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, that's, uh, please hmm. like, please get, get, get it straight. And, you know, right. No, and I'm, I am throughout this, I've been really grateful to the, to the press pool and, and also to its official Twitter account that it, it, it points out, it points out both sides. It's not the, I think the, the prevailing narrative on either side is that that side is clearly right. And the other side is clearly always wrong which which i i think everybody can agree there is a objectively observable imbalance at the moment with one side perhaps stating observably more false things than the other at times but it still bears repeating that you know i think what what julie and olivia always are big on is ultimately they're all politicians and we should just be naturally distrustful probably of politicians, of people who want that kind of power and push for that kind of power and the steps that they take to get there. Yeah. And I feel like that's, in some ways, it's kind of reflective of the political gamesmanship they have. If you're that much a fan of a politician, you're maybe not necessarily a fan of the politician, but so much as what they're doing for your agenda. The basic premise being hero worship on either side probably not a good idea because like you said when you're hero worshiping on either side you're you're not really taking into account probably who who that person is as a politician or or uh, in their totality but you're responding to something that they're doing that you feel will benefit you or what you believe in some way shape or form well like i've tried to talk to i guess neoliberal friends might be the but like friends who are big obama fan people and give mm-hmm. them the Julie line about, so did you know about what Obama did to journalists? And they're either like, well, his DOJ isn't him. Do do you get, by the way, do you get to pick any of the bumpers on the POTUS press pool? Uh, sort of. I will, when I run the board, I will, okay, I will pick music here and there that I specifically want to play. Uh, what usually happens is I will roll in, I will think of a song or you know with a lot of the gaslight anthem stuff or recently mm-hmm. stuff by flying lotus or against me i will think i will have either rolled it in myself to play when i'm board hopping or roll it in because i would like julie to play it and you know she usually de- indulges me every once in a while but i'm not like doing something also that's like wildly out of taste for the show because it's all still kind of alternative e iron maiden has never been a bumper I'm just leaving that here I've thought about it. I just that's one of those things where I feel like Julie could go Julie could go either way. Mm. No, I can see that. I feel like Motorhead would be closer. Motorhead, huh? Cuz Lemmy always, you know, he considered him having more in common with the Ramones than like Iron Maiden. Well, I can think of of a few people who might benefit from an Eat the Rich uh lead-in. <laughs> I think that's a good one. How do you feel about since we talked a little bit about social media in general? How do you as a millennial feel how radio is promoted and Sirius XM specifically, how it promotes itself or its chances of promoting itself on social media versus, you know, look at me, I got the hot viral clip from MSNBC or how does radio try or does it have to try to compete with those viral clips? I mean, in some ways, radio does not necessarily serious, but, you know, your Mark Levine's and your Rush Limbaugh's and your Glenn Beck's and Mm -hmm. all of those guys who are on 
FM talk radio. Like they're still, I mean, it's the thing that Smirconish talks about is that kind of quest for ratings is what defines a lot of that. It's in some ways what I find frustrating about a lot of news and media like mm-hmm. FAM talk radio these days because there is all this competition over ratings and listeners and and clicks like a lot of you know digital or print publications will do like the kind of clickbaity headlines because you know they're trying to get clicks they're trying to get traffic you know radio hosts will say outlandish things maybe in part because they believe them maybe in part because it brings ratings you know Hannity mm-hmm. Carlson uh Chris Hayes Maddow uh Anderson Cooper, all of them will say some, you know, or Don Lemon, I think more, maybe more so, will say some, will say some pretty, you know, outlandish stuff because they're in a quest for ratings and in a quest for hype. I think that's why, you know, Sirius, I, you know, at least with its talk media, you know, isn't out there. You know, we occasionally get stuff that like will appear on Mediaite or, you know, we had that whole, when I was working with Steel and Unger, we had that whole thing with Michael Steele and this and CPAC. With Matt Schlapp. Oh. Yeah. And with Don't, Ian oh, Waters, the, the communications mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. You know, yep. and then Schlapp came on serious the next day, obviously, but you know, that wasn't meant to be a viral moment. That was meant to be a kind of honest dialogue, but then became a viral moment. I feel like serious, you know, when we cut clips, are we looking for things that are newsy? Yes, but we're not necessarily looking for, they're newsy because we get we have because the politicians or newsmakers say them, not because we are trying to feed them questions that will get them to say something outlandish that will affect our ratings. You know, the the quest for ratings I feel in clicks is in some ways kind of hampering good reporting. Not yeah, Sirius is a for profit institution, but at least with the press pool, you know, there is that mandate deliver the news and deliver information and not just, you know, big flashy moments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's also what discerns POTUS Channel and also especially the POTUS Press Pool from other shows is that it's it does not feel like a bunch of people sitting around playing with matches and throwing them in a bog yeah. and hoping that something will blow up. Point being is that I feel like there is a definitely a tone that comes with being a social media person and being more kind of classically, classically is a funny way to put, but you know, like classically millennial. And, you know, I'm just a grumpy old man in in a millennial's body. (laughs) You know, especially in a place like D.C., people live highly in their own silos, not just kind of where they consume their news, but everything. So you have the millennials like me who look at the millennials who unironically go to Milk Bar multiple times (laughs) a year or, you know, are the ones who 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 are the neoliberals preaching about how the Trump administration is evil and how dare these housing policies, et cetera. And yet they are essentially practicing a form of colonization, which they purport to hate by, you know, moving into these neighborhoods and gentrifying the hell out of them mm-hmm. and, you know, yep. kicking out as I'm sensitive to this, especially because working in the jazz community in Washington, DC, uh, I write, I work for a bunch of places, but I help run a nonprofit called capital bop that, has both a journalistic wing that I write for, and we also present shows in the area to keep, you know, jazz culture alive in a city that seems pretty intent on whether intentionally or not snuffing it out. You know, I work with, you know, members of the black community who have lived in DC for generations and, you know, their neighborhoods are being priced out by people who do not give a shit about the history or the significance and, you know, just want to move to a kind of cool, trendy neighborhood with the bougie wine bars and the, I, I get, I am more so than a lot of other millennials. Like gentrification really bothers me. Like especially mm-hmm. in my hometown in Cleveland, we're starting to get like we're not like super gentrified, but there's enough kind of encroachment of like modern bouginess that there is a general distrust I have of how urban centers seem to be kind of not conglomerating, but conglomerating in the sense of all kind of becoming this sticky, bland, homogenous just mix of, you know, it's the same kind of outlet stores, the same kind of big fashion centers, the same kind of wine bars, the same kind of restaurants Mm -hmm. that you see in all of these different urban centers, like there's almost, it's funny because as social media has promised to interconnect our world, it's almost like one of the problems is 
the world is becoming too interconnected to the point of a certain type of person just wants the same things. They want their Whole Foods in their neighborhood. They want their, you know, Amazon deliveries to come on time. They want, you know, to go to the trendy new bar in the neighborhood offering, you know, the craft cocktails and craft beer. And it, it just, because culture is so much the product of what happens locally and because we all live in places that have very unique histories to them, the fact that all of that is being slowly or rapidly erased by these larger forces just bothers me to no end. I feel like in some ways that's why a word I've been using a lot is to think about the last decade as alternatives because I think of, you know, I am not immune to like celebrity culture and kind of celebrity gossip page gazing and, you know, thinking about, it's one of these things where what's interesting about me is, you know, I'm a big fan of Casey Musgraves. I really liked her last album, but now that she's like spending a lot of time like publicly posting about being with like the Kardashians and the Jenners and your Lana Del Rey's, I'm like, uh, I think this is why I like Brian <laughs> Fallon and the Gaslight Anthem because he's just a scruffy dude from New Jersey who is not interested in like those kind of celebrity monoculture, pop culture kind of prestige politics. He's out there doing his thing and, you know, he still gets sells out a venue like the 930 Club or the House of Blues, but, you know, he's not out there trying to do the big celebrity thing. So I think about a lot of the media I try to consume, the art I try to consume is almost like I'm trying to find my alternatives to the dominating narratives on social media. Like the fact that everyone loves Stranger Things, I like that because I love Stranger Things. But at the same time, like I am distrustful of do people like it because it is popular or because they genuinely connect to the fact that these 11 year olds are trying to explain the supernatural phenomena around them using Dungeons and Dragons. Because I am there for that stuff. And that, you know, just inject that in my veins all day because that, you know, <laughs> that's what's ad addictive to me. It, I, it's something I, you know, think about reading like Chris Richards' work, especially because when Chris writes about pop music, he's writing about the larger cultural forces at play, which is why, you know, when he writes about Billie Eilish, he talks about like ASMR and kind of issues of intimacy. And uh, I'm just worried that part of the reason and tying this back to politics and the press pool in a way that as social media continues, as we all post about our lives, about this kind of idealized version of our lives on Instagram and these idealized versions of our thoughts on Twitter and whatever social media platforms we use, that we are isolating ourselves ever more from both the truth about ourselves and the truth about our world around us. It's the scary thing to me about that kind of almost inevitable march of technology in our era and the fact that we don't seem to care about it. I agree with you. And yet, you know, I'm in a, in a bizarre position in the sense that without Twitter, this whole little experiment that we've been part of with this podcast would never exist. So on a micro level, yeah. I guess occasionally it has its benefits, but on a larger, of course, on a larger scale, I definitely take your point. At the same time, you remember from when Julie had on Carol Lee and Margaret Talev and I'm forgetting mm -hmm. who else. Uh, you know, all these past presidents of the White House Correspondents Association before the dinner, yeah. all of them said, without a doubt, if they didn't have to have Twitter for work, they would leave that they would leave the garbage fire immediately. I mean, it's something I think about the fact that I interact with folks like Brian Fallon and Scott Simon on Twitter, mm -hmm. like and lets me connect to them. But at the same time, you know, I think about the fact that we're just kind of using it as this giant echo chamber in which we all yell at each other. Sure. For Social media has done this thing of connecting us more globally to a degree, but has also allowed us to really dehumanize each other to a worrying level, to the point where I think part of the reason our politics are as bad as they are, granted, you know, people on social media are not representative of any majority of any population, but because they appear to be, they've really steered discussions of pol politics and philosophy and religion in some pretty terrifying places. Like, mm -hmm. you know, as much as you and I like to use Twitter for our little reasons, we can't ignore the fact that ISIS used it extensively for recruitment and propaganda. You know, mm. not even to speak of what's going on over at Facebook. That against uh, which I know. Yeah. I, uh, I'm so, I feel like I should delete my Facebook, but I'm just so reliant on it now. 
like I've been using it for the decade. So the idea of deleting it is like I could delete Twitter tomorrow. The idea of deleting Facebook is pretty out there for me. See, and I think that's how most people feel. I could delete my Facebook tomorrow without any. I would download. You can download the entire archive, and then and and be done with it. And I absolutely could do that on Facebook. I really don't use Facebook anymore, hardly at all. But Twitter, on the other hand, that would be tough. So I, I think going back now that I've had more of a time to think of it, we all create our own silos, sure, but you can also create your own silos in a positive way and find those things yeah. that really give you meaning and allow you to self-identify in a world in which self-identity is, especially on the internet, being both challenged and celebrated in some fascinating ways. And actually a much more hopeful note to end on. <laughs> yes. Jackson, thank you so much for doing this. We really, really appreciate it. And in the spirit of not dehumanizing people that we've only heard about i'm glad that we have everybody had this chance to to get to know you thank you for thank you for you know i because no seriously because otherwise you're jackson sinberg who's air drumming again but now people actually know the man behind the air drumming yes and i think well, that's and i think there's there's for whatever it's worth there's there's value to that i've certainly really enjoyed our conversation my record is clean now yes yeah. i enjoyed our conversation <laughs> i did not know where we were gonna go but we've you know the fact that we've covered miyazaki and keith jarrett and politics all in one go is that's pretty good conversation to me thank you for spending the last sunday of the decade with us and yeah happy new year to you as well all right thank you daniel so much